world's tallest building. But according to what the owners say on their website, it's much more than that. It's, uh, more, this is what they say, more than just the world's tallest building. The Burj Khalifa is a symbolic beacon of progress and an emblem of the new, dynamic, and prosperous Middle East. The Burj Khalifa is not just a building. It's a message, they say. And I think the same could be said of the temple that Solomon built. It wasn't just a building. It was a message. The minutiae of proportions and pomegranates might cause us, friends, to miss this message. And so it's important to consider, I mean, admit it, we tend to rush or even skip over passages like this in our daily Bible reading plans, don't we? Cubits and building materials and offset ledges, that was my favorite part. Um, they really excite that strange breed of architect, but they bore the rest of us to death, don't they? But the fact that 40% of Solomon's already brief biography is condensed into this section and focuses on the building of the temple tells us that this is the most important thing that Solomon did. Because Solomon's temple was not just a building, it was a message. Its existence, its structure, its contents together declare God desires to live with his people. And that's important. So a couple of things to chew over tonight in as simple terms as we can. The temple, it's not just a building, it's a message. And the temple builder, it's not just about the building, it's about obedience. And we'll spend way more time on the first point than we will on the second. So let's look at the first point together. Uh, look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. There's an important timestamp in here, actually. Here's where we see that the temple is not just a building. It's a message about the goal of our salvation, the goal of our salvation, uh, for God to live with us and us to live with God. In chapter 6, verse 1, you see the ground is broken in this temple project, and then you read 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Why does, why does that matter? It's that long since it happened. What's the point of mentioning it now as the ground is broken on this project? Well, that Exodus, if you like, was the starting point of Israel's salvation. In the book of Exodus, God had promised his people rescue from their evil oppressors, deliverance from their enemy into a new life that centered on worship of God. And he, according to his promise, God would make his home right in the middle of them. And God kept his promise. When he parted the Red Sea, when the Egyptians were in hot pursuit, God's people crossed over from death to life. He rescued them. And he lived among his people by instructing them to make this special tent for him. And it was called the tabernacle. It was purpose-built for making his home with his people. As God himself said in Exodus 25, verse 8, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. That's from God's own mouth. But everything about this tabernacle said, this is a temporary thing, as tents are. And that bothered King David, Solomon's dad, who was king before him. He said at one point, I'm in a house, God's in a tent, this isn't right, I'm going to build him a house. And God replied and said, no, not yet, and not you. 
he said to David, now listen again for the timestamp, I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this day. So this age, if you like, of the wandering in the desert and not being fully settled is still in progress. And he says, God said to, him when, to David, when I cut off your enemies and have raised up your son, that's when a house for me will be built. So it's as if God had said, look, I won't settle down until I first settle my people. Well, now here in 1 Kings, it appears that God's people are settled. Uh, God's people are happily under Solomon's leadership. And now's the time. God permits the ground to be broken, showing us that this redemption, this rescue plan that started off with the Exodus is done. His people are settled. He's kept his promise to bring them up out of slavery and into this land of promise. It is theirs. They have peace on every side. And that's what Solomon is saying so. He's talking about this in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. In a letter to this very resourceful Hiram, uh, his neighbor, with lots and lots of trees, he's like a B&Q. He says, I've got peace with my neighbors and the promise of God in my favor, so I'm going to build a temple for his renown. And that's when it starts, okay? So you see, even in that, this temple, before we've even got into the nitty-gritty of the offset ledges and the pomegranates, it tells us that the temple is not just a building. It's a message about the goal of our salvation, where God takes those he saves, okay? For God to live with us and us to live with God. Now, I want you to see tonight that this is the ultimate goal of our salvation in this day and age. The storyline of Israel's salvation is really a tracing of the storyline of ours. Jesus in John chapter 5 actually likens our conversion to the Exodus. He says that when we believe in him, we cross over from death to life, and God then makes his home in us, the church, by his Holy Spirit. But we, this isn't a permanent thing. We're more like a temporary dwelling, a tent, a tabernacle, if you like. And the spirit in us is a temporary thing as well, a deposit guaranteeing a future accommodation that is way more substantial. So we live as wanderers in this life, constantly looking forward to that other land of promise that God has offered to those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, the new heaven and the new earth. It's true, you should read it. <laughs> and what we are seeing is that Jesus himself broke the ground of our redemption when he died on the cross to take away our sin. And one day he said, he is coming back. As Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says, it's all right guys, just keep looking at me. Listen, listen, it's all right. Jesus, as we look forward to Revelation 21, 3, it says, look, behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So you see, the temple is not just a message. It's, it's not just a building. It's a message about the goal of our redemption, and it matters for us as much as it mattered for Israel for their promised land, and for ours. The second thing in this section is that the temple's not just a building, it's a message about the God of our salvation. It communicates something very, very important about who God himself is. 
And we see this in chapter 6 and 7 in all the nitty-gritty, the details and the dimensions of this building. So it not only tells us about God's desire to live with us, it tells us about the God who will live with us. It makes Him known. It gives us, if you like, a sneaky peek inside His house. It's like we're going, as Lloyd Grossman said, for those of you who are old enough to remember it, we're going through the keyhole. That's cheesy. Let's move on. In 1992, here's another one, um, Windsor Castle, many of you know, was devastated by a fire, and to help pay for some of the repairs, the Queen opened her home to visitors. And for the first time in history, common folk like us could have a, a tour around Buckingham Palace for a small fee. And I, I've never done it. I don't know if any of you have. I don't know if you can still do it today, actually. But it, I'm sure that if you were taking a tour around Buckingham Palace, it wouldn't take very long to notice the different things, the, almost the, the decor, the throne room, I expect, would give it away quite easily. You know, the gold and the big fancy seat and things like that. But it wouldn't take much as you walk through her house to communicate something of her majesty. Like, this is not a house in Cramond. You know, this is not, this is not just your, your two up and two down thing. This, this is a proper house. A, a house that's fit for royalty. And I think that lots of the information that we're given in this passage communicates this to us concerning the temple. It's a tour of God's house, and it tells us so much about the king who lives there. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 6, if you want to scan it, describes the exterior. Uh, to be honest, I, I, I'm no architect, but I don't think it was particularly impressive. I wouldn't win any prizes for architectural ingenuity. It was fairly rectangular and cuboid. But anyway, I, I, I doubt any other building has been built in the same manner as this one. Look with me at verse 7 in particular. No hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site. Now, I think that's remarkable for a building site. When I was a kid, I used to go and help my uncle labor. He, was a, uh, uh, he worked on building sites. I used to go and help him at times. And even uh, recently, I've been cycling past on my way into work in the morning the, the works that are the building site down at Haymarket there. And I don't know what kind of things you normally hear as you pass a building site, but recently I've heard lots of things like hammering and yelling and drilling and wolf whistles. And not at me, I should add. But imagine, though, a building site. Imagine a building site that's silent. You don't hear any of that. Oi, pass me the hammer or anything. You know, it's silent. I think that's remarkable. And the details in there to communicate to us that it is remarkable. It is remarkable. It tells us about the resident of this building that he's to be revered. Like even the construction of his house is a holy thing and an important thing. Now, that's the outside. And if the outside wasn't very impressive, the inside certainly was. Wow, verses 14 to 38 in particular describe the interior. It's more than impressive, really. I think if, when the archaeologist Howard Carter was first asked what he saw when he looked into the, the tomb of King Tutankhamun, he, replied, he just replied, wonderful things. And I think that's what we would say uh, if we were given an opportunity to have a look in here in Solomon's temple. Verses 14 to 18 take us through the front porch and into the holy place. That's essentially the main hall. 
And well, I'm sure you'd be struck by the fact that everything was overlaid with gold. It's the metal of majesty. I mean, how many times did the word gold actually appear in that little section? Gold this, gold that, gold this. And by the way, there's more golds. Okay? It's the metal of majesty. And it's communicating the fact that a king lives here. Now, verses 29 to 30 tells, tell us also about some of the wall carvings. And they almost act like a storyboard for us. There are trees, gourds, pomegranates, and they would take you back to Eden to that pre-fall, pre-sin existence where God and man lived in unhindered friendship. But then you'd see the angels, lots of them. They're actually everywhere inside the temple. They're on the walls. They're especially on the doors into the little cube at the back, the most holy place. And they also transport us right back to the garden and our rejection from it. Now, this again communicates the holiness that's necessary to be in God's presence. He is, after all, holy. And if you need any more convincing, we can just look at verses 20, uh, 19 to 28. And here are some of the most important part of the temple plans. The cubicle at the back, the, the inner sanctuary or the most holy place. According to its dimensions, it is a perfect cube. There is only one other perfect cube in the whole Bible, that is the new heaven and new earth. It's the city, the new city of Jerusalem as it descends in Revelation 21. You can read about that a bit later if you want. But as for the contents of the most holy place, well, again, it was dominated by these angelic attendants, two colossal angels. But beneath the angel sat the ark of God. Now, if you're new to church, the ark is not a boat, it's a chest. It contains God's law. And a couple of items in there that are so, so important to God's people. We'll look at that next week. And, it can, and on top of that little chest was said to be God's throne. This is where God, when he is in residence, sits. And Hebrews 9 actually gives us a little bit more insight into this, saying this is actually an earthly copy of God's heavenly throne room. Now, the thing about the most holy place is that it it essentially kept people out. God was communicating through this temple his desire to live with his people, but fundamentally only priests could make it into the holy place. Never mind the most holy place at the back. That was reserved for the high priest alone and only once a year to offer special sacrifice. The only way that people could come in, even the priests and the high priest into the most holy place was through sacrifice. And then you've got in chapter 7, 13, uh, chapter 7, 13 to the end, contains this long list of separate items from pillars to huge wash basins, all of which declare that God has actually made a way for people to come into his presence, to approach him. The temple has created that for sinful humanity, but it's strictly according to God's instruction, what entails sacrifice. The idea is this, animal sacrifices absorb the sin that would prevent their, a person's approach to God when that animal dies in their place. You see, it's only through the blood of a substitute that unholy people like us can enter the presence of God. It was true back then, true for us who believe in the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God today. So the temple communicates then to us that the only way to this God of holiness this God of our salvation, is through a sacrifice of atonement. It tells us that, so that provides more evidence for the fact that this 
temple is not just a building, it's a message. A message not only about the goal of our salvation, but about the God of our salvation. He is to be revered. He is holy. And He has made a way for sinful people to approach Him and enjoy Him. Now, this temple was a magnificent communication of what God wants and who God is. But the temple, even when it's built with substantial materials, uh, was never meant to be a permanent dwelling place. It's kind of like an architect's model. Uh, I met one of our elders, David Patterson, um, for, for lunch one day, and I met him at his workplace, and I went into the warehouse uh, where David, the bit, David, where are you? What, what, tell people what you do. He looks after the city's museum collections, and it's like a treasure trove when you go into his work. Honestly, I walked in, and I was just struck by this seven or eight foot thing in front of me, and it was, it, was a, it was an architect model, if you like, of the Scott Monument. I thought it was thoroughly impressive. The detail on it was so intricate. It was outstanding. Now, it's nothing compared to the real thing. You stand on Princess Street, and you're just like, wow, this thing is colossal. A little bit gothic, but it's colossal. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. Now, what I want to say is that even this temple is like the architect's model of the greater building to come. And this time, I'm not even talking about the new heaven and new earth. I am talking about Jesus Christ. You're like, how can a man, even the God-man, be a temple? That's ridiculous. Well, not so. Not when you realize that the temple is the place where man and God may meet. In John chapter 2, Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem, and he cleared the temple. He tipped over the tables of the money changers. He drove people out of there. And the religious leaders who were there say, what sign will you give us to show that you have authority to do this? And he said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it again in three days. And they're like, this destroy this temple, and you rebuild it in three days. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. This was the third rendition of the temple, by the way. It wasn't Solomon's temple. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You reckon you're going to reconstruct it in three days? But then the text gives us the additional note. They didn't realize that Jesus wasn't talking about the edifice. He was talking about his body. He was talking about his body. Later in his ministry, he'd prophesy the end, of, the end of and the obsolescence of the temple. It shouldn't be a concern for anyone because you no longer need to go to a place to meet with God. Now, in the new covenant, you go to a person. Jesus is the one you go to to meet with God. Jesus is the new and better temple. We don't need bricks and mortar he came in flesh and blood. And he is, as the angels declared at his birth, Emmanuel, God with us. Owen read earlier from John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the new and better temple. And more than that, he's also the great high priest. He's also the sacrifice. He 
He's not only the one that you go to to meet with God. He is the one through whom you are reconciled to God through faith in his blood. Through faith in his blood. You see, this temple then says to us, the only way to God is through this sacrifice of atonement. Jesus said the same, and he is the one when he died on the cross, satisfied God's justice by becoming a sin-bearing substitute for us, declaring the fact that all people like us have sinned. We've fallen short of God's glorious standard. We've rebelled against his word and we've defied his authority. But Jesus has done something about that and he says that if you believe in him, and repent of your sin, you turn from it in hatred and turn to him in joy at his salvation, you'll be saved. And you will have the Holy Spirit live in you, guaranteeing the inheritance to come. So that's the first thing that I want us to see, that it's not just a building, it's a message, this temple, a message about the goal of our salvation and the God of our salvation, ultimately pointing forward to both Jesus and to the new heaven and new earth. But the other thing that this passage really highlights for us, where the text slows down a bit, is when it talks about Solomon himself, the temple builder. Let's look at this just quickly. This is where we see that when it comes to building, it's not just about, for Solomon, it's not just about building, it's about obedience. Look with me at chapter 6 in verses 11 to 13. It says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, keep my commands, and obey them. So follow, observe, keep, obey. All of his decrees and laws. I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to, your, to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. So you see, there are conditions attached to this. God is making a way for his people to be with him and for them, for him to be with them and them to be with him. But if they are so outlandish and obscene in their rebellion, and if they turn, as the warnings before this point in 1 Kings indicate, turn to idols, false gods, he says effectively in a mirror reading of this, that he will abandon. But God is speaking here to interrupt the king's planning to say that his everlasting presence, the everlasting presence that he is promising to Solomon was actually dependent on obedience of the king, Solomon himself. And without this, without that, without God's presence, that beautiful building would be a slaughterhouse, really. That's all it would be. Now, Solomon, in the end, didn't keep God's commands. Solomon couldn't keep all of God's commands. You only have to look at chapter 7 and verses 1 to 12 for further evidence of what we've seen all along in 1 Kings so far, the tragedy of his divided heart. Look with me at the end of chapter 6, the very last verse. And the first verse of chapter 7, you see, in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, the 8th month, this temple was finished in all its details. According to its specifications, he had spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of the palace. 
Now, we could argue that there are different reasons for the different timescales. Why would it take so long to build the palace and the other uh, outlying buildings related to that? That much more? I mean, was it just that he had less of a labor force, etc., at that time? Less wood? Well, I think the text is communicating for us that there's a real contrast going on. And whenever the Old Testament narratives speak to us of contrast, we need to sit up and take note. It's stated in a negative way because Solomon was showing the distractedness of his divided heart. He was following the tracings of the dimensions and the instructions for the temple that God had set for the tabernacle, transferring them. But he was taking more delight in building this palace of his and the outlying buildings. The skyline of Jerusalem, you see, would have been dominated not by the temple, but by the palace. And God's word here paints that in a negative light for us, showing us once more the tragedy of Solomon's divided heart. Do you know what that feels like? You know what it feels like even at times to, to be serving God in some way and glad in doing so, but recognizing the dividedness of our heart. We're not wholehearted in our devotion to him. We're half-hearted. We're distracted by other things, the idols of money and success and power, of just wanting to be well-liked, of having a good reputation and the like. Oh, these kind of distractions can be terribly dangerous. That is a secondary application of this text. The primary application of this text relates to the fact that Solomon is a king. And the safety and security of the people and the opportunity for them to meet with God and God with them is dependent on a king's obedience. And Solomon failed. And actually, as we'll see as this series goes on and afterwards, everything from the point of the temple next week when God's glory fills it takes a sudden crash, a sudden downturn. And all the kings that come after Solomon are effectively worse. We need a new and better king. And thankfully, Jesus himself came to be that new and better king. There is only one person, in fact, in all of history who has ever, who has never, never fallen foul of a divided heart, and that is Jesus Christ, who with wholehearted, single-minded devotion to God, perfectly obeyed his Father. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And because of that, he's the guarantee that when we declare our desire to live with God through faith in Jesus, that in, that in him, that will never be taken away. This dwelling of ours will never be repossessed. It is permanent for us, assured. And Jesus not only gives us that security when we believe in him, or he employs us in his own building project, because he's actually in the process of building another temple. It is the church, not a building, but a people. The church being the temple because God lives in it by his Holy Spirit. And we are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the temple of the living God. We are being built together, as Paul says, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And Peter says, as you come to God, you are being built into a spiritual house. We are, if you like, living stones 
within the temple of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want you to see something very, very important. Because I speak to lots and lots of people who think that they need to somehow scrub themselves up morally in order to become a part of the church, in order to believe in God and come before Him. We think, using Solomon's materials, that we need to be the choicest material of the finest cut from the quarry. We need to be perfect in dimensions to fit into this thing. But that's not true. Jesus uses shoddy materials like me and like the people who are in a membership in this church family. We're not perfectly hewn, but yet we are more precious than cedar and gold and stone, much more glorious because we're made in God's image. And no one has sinned so much to be beyond this salvation, beyond this promise. So my encouragement for you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, is to take hold of this while you've got the chance, saying sorry for your sin and believing in his name. For those of us who are brothers and sisters in the Lord's, building the temple is what Jesus the King is doing right now. He's having been perfectly obedient in this life. He now lives in heaven where he waits his return and in the meantime, here on earth, he has commissioned us, his church, to be all about building this temple of his by bringing more living stones into the church and constructing it, building it up. And that, I want to encourage us to see, is the most important thing that we can be doing in this life. Everything else in this life is essentially scaffolding compared to this. This is what we need to be committed to, bringing in new stones, being built together by his love. This is the great work that Christ is doing. And one day when Jesus the King returns, all of the scaffolding of life will finally come down. God will reveal what he's been building, and the church will be shown to be as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day, ready to live in the new heaven and new earth where God says, I will dwell with you, and you will dwell with me. Let's be about that work as we go from here and tell others about Jesus. Let's pray.